we're going to go right to our scripture reading. We're going to go to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. We're going to read through verse 43. A very familiar passage. Uh, Now Mark, we know from the first chapter, Mark has written his gospel to invoke faith in those who hear the gospel according to our Lord Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus Christ is Israel's Messiah. He is Israel's King. He is the Son of God. We see that at the beginning in chapter 1, and we see it all the way at the end of Mark's gospel there with the centurion at the cross. Truly, this man was and is the Son of God. So we have this literary sandwich, if you will, with the pack full with the gospel truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ in the middle. So let's listen now. I'm going to read verses 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, he's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, he's going to the western side. So he's going back towards Capernaum, home base. A great crowd gathered about him, And he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him, that being Jesus, earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he, Jesus, went with him, Jairus. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all she had, and was no better, but grew, or rather, grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well, or your faith has literally saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking, that being Jesus, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing, or literally in the Greek, ignoring what they had said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, an uproar, people weeping and wailing loudly. 
And when he, Jesus, had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed, deriding him, jeering at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which in Aramaic, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And immediately they were overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this. He told them to give her something to eat. Thus far the reading of God's holy infallible word. May he bless it to us. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray and ask for your blessing, the blessing of the new covenant, that the Holy Spirit would come and be our teacher, not divorced from means, not divorced from human instruments, but in concert with and through, Lord, you would speak truth to your people through a preacher. Would you bless this preacher and put my poor efforts? May I be broken and fed as it were, to your people, that you, Lord Jesus Christ, might be all in all. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Desperate people do desperate things, don't they? Desperation. I uh, saw a couple weeks ago a man was desperate. You know, desperate people do desperate things. You can have things that are desperate that are not so wise and not very smart and actually end up hurting you, maybe even killing you. And there are also good examples. We're going to meet two examples that are very good and to be commended to us this evening and and Jarius and this woman. But last week, let me give you this bad one. Uh, I saw this gentleman. He was trying to escape uh, being uh, chased by the police. He was in a car, driving a a car, and he was on the highway. This is what he did. Kids, don't try this at home. It it didn't turn out well. He jumps out of the car while it's moving down, I think, uh, PCH, one of the highways in the West Coast, I think. Uh, highway 5, ends up dying. He was a fool, right? So desperate people do desperate things, right? But there are good examples, as we have before us with the ruler Jairus, right, whose 12-year-old daughter is near death, and a woman who Mark tells us had a discharge or hemorrhage of blood, perhaps a uterine hemorrhage of some kind. We don't know exactly, a menstrual problem. We don't know exactly what it was. But also we're told that she had suffered for 12 years, right? Now, they stand at opposite ends of the social ladder, right? Now, here's Jarius, right? He's the synagogue ruler. He's a man of status. He's a man of bearing. You could say he'd be like the modern equivalent of a, a ruling elder. As I thought about it, Mr. Hutton, I thought, well, here's what a man who would probably run the synagogue. He'd be the church administrator, right? He was a man of some status. He's on the ladder. He's on the, wor- the ladder of upward mobility. And you juxtapose that man with this woman, whom we don't even know her name, right? We're not even told her name. There's, and what could be more, uh, right, uh, upsetting not to know your name, right? We don't even know who she is. She's nameless. She's not even on the ladder, right? One approaches Jarius face to face, but the woman, did you notice this, that rather than come to him face to face like Jarius did, she comes around to the back door. And we're going to talk about that and why that was. And I think I have some thoughts on that. 
Right? But both, they, both of them knew they had no hope apart from Jesus. They both were desperate in this way. They were very much like us, right? In spite of all our accomplishments, in spite of our technology and modern medicine, we give thanks for that all the time. Mr. Hutton reminds me of the common grace of God, and I need to be reminded because I can become jaded at times and not see the, the goodness and the beauty of God in the midst of all the brokenness that's all around us, right? But in spite of all of that, we're still powerless in our suffering. We're still powerless, ultimately, over death itself. You see, both Jairus and the woman were beyond human help. And, beloved, so are we. Uh, whether physical or spiritual, we all have great needs, problems that we, we cannot fix and solve on our own, besetting sins, broken relationships, various disabilities, right, diseases, Areas of personal weakness that leave us discouraged and defeated, right? And in the end, right, we know that death is the great equalizer. We all have to face that in the end. We don't know how far out it's going to be for each one of us, but we know that death ultimately will, will lay us down, literally. Uh, death brings us all to our knees in the end, right? Beloved, both Jairus and this woman have much to teach us. In uh, Mark five twenty-one to 43, we see desperate faith coming to a merciful Savior, and I think both of these uh, examples have much to teach us, particularly about the subject of faith, and I think that's the key. I think that's the key that holds them together. It's like a literary sandwich, right? You have this, this little pericope with when Jarius comes, and then you have this interlude with this woman, and then you pick up again with the Jarius. and if you look, I think both of them have to do with faith. And I think the woman is going to be exhibit A for Jairus to hold fast to Jesus in faith in the spite of the circumstances. It's interesting because God's going to use this woman who has no status to teach this man who has a lot of status. It's just like our God, isn't it, to do this? And it's exactly what he does. All right, it's a familiar text. Uh, there's a few observations we'll make along the way, but let's just kind of dig right in. Verse 21, and when Jesus had crossed again, in the boat to the other side, again, he's coming to the west, the Capernaum side, right? This is where the uh, base of operations was. We're told that a great crowd gathered about him, right? And he was beside the sea. Verse 22, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Seeing him, he fell at his feet. Again, this is a respected leader in the community, a man of some social standing. He's the modern equivalent of a, a church administrator. He comes to Jesus in desperation, falling at his feet. Why is this respected man, right, in the community, humiliating himself like this and falling at Jesus' feet? You know why? He's desperate. He's desperate. He's at the end of the line, at the end of the rope, and there's no even knot there, right? There's nothing there. He has no place else to go, right? You do desperate things in desperate circumstances. Verse 23, and implored Jesus earnestly... My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. His daughter is at the point of death, literally at death's door. You see, he had heard of Jesus. Do you think Jesus had taught there in the synagogue at Capernaum? I would venture to say so, right? In his desperate faith, he falls before Jesus. You see, Jairus has no place to go, no place else to go. He pleads with Jesus to come. Please come. This was the greatest crisis that Jairus had ever faced, right? You see, in moments like these, God becomes very relevant. I was talking to Mr. Kennedy before how God uses um, 
trials and he'll use sufferings uh, and episodes in our lives to awaken us to the relevancy of God. Uh, Reverend David Nilback uh, tells this story. He was a pastor. He ran in the Boston Marathon back in 2013. Can you believe that was 10 years ago? I mean, it seems like that was just like two or three weeks ago. But no, it was 10 years ago. This is what he said. He says about that marathon in Boston and the bombing that ensued at the end of the marathon. He says, the tragedy in Boston reminded me of the foolishness of assuming we can judge what is relevant and what is not. God in His grace has told us ahead of time which race really matters in life. Tragedy has a way of making God relevant. At the finish line of the Boston Marathon, it took only seconds that God became very relevant, you see. Tragedy has a way of doing that. That's exactly what's going on with Jairus. This man, composed, man of status, man of bearing, respected in the community, right? Probably a ruling elder-like guy, right? Upstanding guy, church administrator. But his little daughter, 12 years old, is at the point of death. Death has come knocking on his door. You see, Jairus is desperate. His life, his, the life of his daughter's in the balance, right? But notice that the Savior of sinners doesn't mind being interrupted, right? Jesus, willingly enters in the desperation of Jairus, right? And I thought to myself, this evening, are you in a tight spot? You know, some of you I know and some of the trials you're going through and the struggles you have. But I wonder if you're in a tight spot tonight. You feel desperate, needy. Maybe you've been praying and asking God and banging on that door of heaven for the salvation of a loved one, a friend. Maybe you've been witnessing to someone. Maybe you've received a diagnosis this week that's not too favorable to you and you're sitting there in your isolation, alone, even though you're in the midst of a room full of people, right? You still feel alone, like an owl in the wilderness. You're like the psalmist in Psalm 88, right, Mr. Sloan? Loneliness like Christ forsaken, so seemingly so, anyway. But Christ enters in, right? He enters into the desperation of his people, right? He becomes relevant in desperate times. Mark tells us in verse 24, Jesus went with him. We're told that a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, right? Here's the, the, the wonder worker going through only. You can just see it in a way, right? Just the throngs of people Flocking all around him, wanting to get near, wanting to hear every word. Jesus hears this desperate man's cry and he goes with him, right? He departs without a moment to spare. And as they're going, we're told in verses 25 to 26, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood. Again, a uterine hemorrhage, perhaps menstrual of some sort, we're not exactly sure. For 12 years, who had suffered under much, uh, under many of, uh, physicians. He, she had spent all she had, and it was no better, but actually grew worse right? Beloved, here we meet another desperate sinner, right? She's been suffering for 12 years. There's no cure, no remedy. She spent all she's had. She was no better for it, and he actually grew worse. You see, her physical ailment not only affected her health, but according to Leviticus 15, it rendered her ceremonially unclean, right? It would be bad enough to have this chronic ailment, right? Have to suffer there in silence, Right, and let life go on as it always had. But according to Mosaic law, she was to be out 
put outside the camp. She had to make people aware that she was unclean, and to touch her was to render oneself unclean as well. Not only her, but you as well. For 12 long years, no one could embrace her. Think about that. Right? We're not Latinos, right? I remember in seminary, the Latinos, they loved to hug. <laughs> they loved to hug. There's a minister here in the room tonight who loves to hug, and I love to hug him. Right? But can you imagine? You can't. You really can't put your head around that, not being hugged for 12 years. Right? She's an outcast. She's nameless. Mark doesn't even tell us her name. Right? I, I think God is painting the picture to want us, wanting us to see just how desperate the situation is, how bleak, how dark it is, right? Because he comes against the black canvas of our sin and our misery and our brokenness and our sin and our uterine hemorrhages and our near-death experiences. You know what he does? He comes and he paints with the most vibrant colors the glory and the beauty and the goodness and the truth of his beloved son. He paints him with words. The words of the gospel. And that's what he's doing here. Her her alienation and isolation are profound. She has lost everything. Her money. Her relationships. No friends. No family. No synagogue. No church family. No fourth Sunday fellowship meal. No fellowship community activities. But beloved, the one thing she did have that Jesus saw She had desperate faith. Desperate faith. Verses 27 to 28. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him. Why behind him? I think because she's full of shame. She knows she's unclean, she knows that she's a sinner. She knows that she's not lovely. She knows. She dare not come to him in the front. She has too much respect for him. He's the great leader. He's suspected to be the the son of David. So she dare not come to him face to face. She comes up behind him. In the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, in her heart, right? She's saying this in her heart. If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Though her faith was small and and, uh, uninformed, right? It's perhaps mixed with superstition, right? There was this belief that the clothing of a holy person had uh, healing powers in it, right? Her faith is not perfect. Your faith's not perfect. This teaching elder's faith is not perfect. But there's one who is perfect. The one whom desperate faith looks to. He's perfect. She acted on what she had heard. And in her desperation, in faith, she reached out and touched the hem of his garment. We're told in verse 29, of course we're told the next word in 29. Immediately, it's Mark's gospel, right, Sparky? Immediately, the flow of blood dried up. 
And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. In a moment, her 12 years of frustration, 12 years of shame and isolation and alienation are over. She was whole again. In Hebrew, she was experiencing shalom, wholeness, the fullness of God. The Proverbs talk about the soul of the righteous is made fat. Right? We typically in our culture think of fat. That's a bad thing. We don't want to be fat. We're always dieting. But in the word of God, to have a fat soul, oh, that's a blessing. Now her soul is fat. She's rich in Jesus. Right? She's made whole. She has shalom. Right? And Jesus, knowing that power had gone out from him, Mark tells us in verse 30, immediately turns in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? The disciples are bewildered. The better question is, who's not touching you? (laughs) Right? This throng, this crowd. The disciples respond in verse 31, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? But the Son of God will not be deterred. He continues to look for her. His Hesed love follows us all the days of our life, we're told in Psalm 23. And that's exactly what it's doing. Here's Hesed love incarnate, pursuing this, this woman who was defiled, who's now made whole by his grace, who touched him. She, he continues to look. And then if you, you, you pan out, you think to yourself, all the while, Jarius is still there. His mind's racing. He's panicking. He's fearful. He's scared. His little daughter's life now is in the balance. What's going to happen? The woman, we're told, knowing all along what had happened, knows that she can no longer remain anonymous. Verse 33, came in fear and trembling and fell down. Where? What's it say, church? Where? Before him. Isn't that beautiful? Before him. She dare come to him. Prior. She comes in her wholeness before him. Face to face. Before the living God. That's what grace does. Grace restores. Grace makes us whole. Grace just swallows up alienation. It swallows up death. It swallows up sin. It overwhelms it. It conquers it. And the Lord Jesus, rather than rebuking her for making him unclean, which he would willingly do in subsequent days at the cross, Jesus tenderly addressed her. Verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in shalom, go in peace, and be healed of your disease. You see, Jesus wants her to know that it was not his clothing, but her faith in him, the Savior who saved her. Isn't it amazing? And Wes spoke about this last week. We know that regeneration precedes faith. We also know that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So for us to believe the gospel, God has to regenerate our hearts, making us willing and able, according to our confession, 
chapter 10, Westminster, able to believe. So he regenerates our heart. He takes away that heart of Adam, and he puts in a new heart of the second Adam, the last Adam, a heart of flesh. So that heart is now made willing and able. And we hear the gospel, and that gospel comes, and it quickens our heart, and he regenerates it. But isn't it interesting here that he gives faith, and then he calls us to use that faith, doesn't he? And he calls us not only to use the faith that he gives, right? But he matures us as he tests that faith, as he proves that faith, which is more precious than silver and gold, right? And he proves it not through, you know, uh, pillows and cotton and pleasantries, but through testing, through the fiery trials, that your faith will be tested. And Jairus here is going through this trial. He doesn't even know it yet, but it's all happening to him in the background. God is working in his heart, testing the faith. Will Jairus hold on? Will he hold fast? And while Jesus is speaking to the woman, his daughter, this woman whom now he calls his daughter, Jairus gets news from some who have come from his home. Verse 35, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now put yourself again in Jairus' shoes. If, if only Jesus would have come, would not have stopped. If only we had kept going. My daughter might possibly still be alive. Doesn't God care? You ever been there? Chapter 4, one chapter over, the disciples are taken out on the Sea of Galilee and a storm arises. He's asleep in the stern of the ship. What does he say? What do the disciples say? Don't you care? You see, God is not responding the way Jarius thinks he should. Interestingly, Mark tells us in verse 36, but overhearing or ignoring what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue. Notice it says that. It doesn't call him by his personal name. Why does it do that? I think what Mark wants us to see is the juxtaposition between this widow, this woman who has the issue of blood who's now made whole, this nobody, with this somebody who's now being attended to by Jesus. A man of status, a man of influence, unlike the woman. You know, see, he was schooled in the scriptures, right? He's a ruling elder. He's a church administrator, right? He, he should know, unlike her. But notice what Jesus says to him. Do not fear, only believe. And I think the key is this. Jairus, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years this isolated, alienated, defiled woman, this outcast, my daughter, who's now made whole, she risked everything in her desperation to get to me. Go and do likewise. Commit yourself to me, Jarius. Do not fear, only believe. Saints, Jesus longs to strengthen Jarius' faith. Jesus does this through testing. Jarius was a man who had a controlled life. He's a Presbyterian. 
I'm telling you, he is. He had his life all mapped out. And here he is now, in the most hopeless spot of all. Death has come calling. I'm here, your daughter. The great equalizer comes calling. His 12-year-old daughter is dead. And now fear is crouching at his heart's door, ready to consume him. Would he trust Jesus or not? Would he learn the lesson of faith that Jesus had just put before his eyes with the woman who had the issue of blood? Exhibit A, right there. This intruder. The one in his doubts is saying, if we would have just gone to my house, my daughter would still be alive. Beloved, what about you this evening? Is God delaying something in your life? Something you really want. You've been asking God for it. Maybe it's a salvation of a child. Maybe it's something very good and godly. And as far as you can tell, using the, your own calculus, humanly speaking, you think, well, why wouldn't God give me this? And maybe it seemed like everything was moving along really well, but now it seems as though God is distracted. It seems that he's forgotten you. Are you ready to give up? Satan is whispering in your ear. Why bother the teacher anymore? Uh, don't, let's, not, let's not bother him anymore. My needs evidently don't matter. This is the way the heart of man operates. Are you growing impatient with God? God's timing? Beloved, it seemed to Jairus that Jesus was delaying for no good reason. The woman could have waited until later. What's a few more minutes? She had suffered for 12 years, right? She'd already suffered for 12 years. What's, What's a few more minutes, right? Can't Jesus get along and get to where I need him to get to? But Jairus' daughter is now dead. Beloved, we like Jairus don't always have all the information though, do we? We don't always know all that God's doing. If you've been a ruling elder more than a week, you know this is the way he works. He has no counselors. He has no advisors. You see, beloved, he longs to bring us to the place where we learn what it means to say, the Lord, he is God. He longs to bring us to that place in that psalm that we recite by memory at every funeral. 
It's a passage we know so well. It becomes so, it's almost like water off a duck's back. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I don't need anything else. If I have the God who's the fear of Isaac and the friend of Abraham, the God and Father who spared not his own son, then I have all that I need. The lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. Right? Psalm 16. He's trying to bring us there. Jesus lived there 24-7, 365, his whole life. That was the place he lived. In childlike dependence on his father, communion with his father. There was only one time, one moment in whole existence, earthly existence. And that's when he was forsaken for you and for me. When he was cut off. And he went to the far country. He went outside the camp. Where he identified with you and with me. And my sin and my ugliness. My defilement. My alienation. My isolation. I was unclean, unclean, unclean. And he who was not unclean became unclean. That I might become clean in him. You see that's what it's all about. And beloved, there's no better place to learn about this childlike faith and desperate faith in a merciful Savior than in the face of death. Church, Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. And in the Greek, this is a present tense. Not just, well, you know, I believed when I became a communicant member, like, you know, a few years ago, I professed my faith for the elders. No, it's... It's believe and keep on believing. You get up on Monday and you believe. You believe all day Monday. And then you get up on Tuesday and you believe all day Tuesday. And Wednesday. And Thursday. Friday and Saturday. And then you get to come to God's house on Sunday. And hear the word preached. Right? You're believing. And you're crying, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Right? Right? All the while, we pick up back at 37, at the home of Jairus. Jesus allows none but Peter, James, and John to follow him. Right? He, he disperses the crowd. Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw the commotion, the upheaval, people weeping and wailing loudly. Uh, there were as a professional mourners that were hired by the family. Oftentimes, we'd be brought in. That's what's happening here. You can only imagine the scene. You've seen the scenes on TV, right? You've seen... Uh, the tragedies in the Middle East, these bombings and murders and all the, the mayhem that's uh, because of sin all throughout the world. And you've seen uh, uh, the, the funerals, the processions. They're just throngs of people, crowds just wailing and crying. It's just, the, just chaos. Well, that's the picture here. Verse 39, Jesus enters the home and asks, why this commotion, this uproar and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. Jesus here is speaking metaphorically, right? Death for believers is referred to as sleep. The crowd of unbelief responds, verse, verse 40, they laughed, but Jesus put them all outside and took the child and father and mother and the three disciples, and they go into where the child was. Mark tells us in verse 41, taking her, that is the child, by the hand, said to her, Talitha kumi, which in Aramaic means, little girl, I say to you, arise. You could paraphrase it, my, my child, it, it's time to awake. Mr. Kennedy going into the bedroom of his little girls. 
They're sleeping. It's time to get up, sweetheart. We're told in verse 42, again, immediately, it's Mark's gospel. We see it everywhere. The girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old. She was a seventh grader. And they were immediately overcome (laughs) with amazement. Verse 43, and Jesus strictly charged them that no one should know this. They told him to go and give her something to eat. Why does he say no one should know this? I've thought about this. There's a lot of speculations on this, but I think it's this. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding regarding the person of Messiah and what Messiah would do and the nature of his kingdom. And I think rather than get caught up in that misunderstanding, Jesus wants to keep his distance because it's not his hour just yet. I think that's the reason John says this all the time, right? It's not the hour, the time, right? It's not the fullness of time for the Son of God to be made manifest. And I think that's what he's alluding to here. But notice how the power displayed ends in amazement, right? Jairus' faith has now become sight, right? And so will ours at the resurrection. And just a final observation this evening. Why did Jesus allow this woman to remain anonymous? I think First and foremost, I think it's for God's glory, first and foremost, before anything else. <laughs> we always have to begin that, that way. But it's an example of faith for Jairus. This alienated, isolated woman was exhibit A to help Jairus hold fast to Jesus in the face of death. God uses the weak to shame the wise, the foolish, to cause the proud to stumble and fall. Another reason, again, now everyone would come to know that she was the woman Jesus healed. You can imagine, she's restored to God in the community. She would be the first one to show up at Jairus' synagogue. Isn't that a beautiful picture, to think about that? She's there now, worshiping Messiah, son of David, Jesus with Jairus (laughs) in the synagogue. You see, beloved, both the woman and Jairus were desperate And though their faith was weak and imperfect, look at what it obtained. It obtained salvation from the dead. Physical and spiritual life from the dead. Beloved, it's not a big faith that saves, right? Maybe you're sitting there tonight and go, you know, I don't have the faith of that woman. You know, I don't have the faith of Jairus. You know, it's not the size of your faith. It's the size of your Savior. He's a mighty Savior a merciful Savior who enters into our desperation, who enters into your desperation that he tailor-makes for you to begin with, your trial. He tailor-makes that trial so he might enter into that trial and show him to be God in your trial, that your faith might grow, that the faith he gives you might grow by the circumstances he places you in sovereignly, that it might all redound to the glory of the triune God, you see. So let me encourage you this evening to continue to press forward when the voice of unbelief tells you otherwise. Continue to plead with Christ, right? Continue to plead with Christ. Continue to to knock on heaven's door. You can't disturb him. You will not disturb him. He he longs to be disturbed. (laughs) Those who diligently seek me shall find me, saith the Lord, right? So when the voices of unbelief tell you otherwise, don't believe it. The day is coming when Christ will take you by the hand and say to you, as he said to the little girl, my child arise. So saints, don't fear, only believe. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you scratch exactly where our heart itches. That you speak to us 
as image bearers. You speak to us as your creatures redeemed in Jesus Christ. We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray and ask now you'd come and bless us through the means of grace, through the bread and the wine, as we feed on Jesus truly and spiritually. We pray in his name. Amen.